0: Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called David McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, if. only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. I am looking out from a hotel room in Beirut on the Mediterranean. The sun is splitting the rocks. The city is... Kind of crumbling, kind of splendorous in certain areas. Huge parts of it gouged out by that extraordinary bomb about two years ago. I'm here for about 10 days doing a very interesting shoot about money, where it comes from, where it might go, etc. Just to give you a bit of background, this is a country where the exchange rate has fallen by 97%. So people's incomes in dollar terms have fallen by 97%. In two years. People who believe in Armageddon suggest that the rest of the world will go this way because dollar printing over the last 10, 15, and certainly the last four years has been monumental. I don't share that view, but clearly, if you want to see what happens to a country when money dies and money is dead here, the real currency is dead, you go to Lebanon. It's that moment where the difference between a piece of paper with currency written on it. And a tissue becomes indistinguishable. And that is a phenomenally bizarre sight to see. But apart from that, all is good. And I am looking at Mr. Davis here, who's in Spain, I believe.
2: I am indeed. (laughs) Cheery stuff. That was a nice cheery opening there, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, Ed? I'm great. I'm on my Spanish epic odyssey at the moment. So what I've been doing is I started up in the Bay of Biscay, up near Santander, walked around the Pico's. And I've made my way all the way down through the middle of Spain, through Madrid. And I'm now down in the coast, the med coast. Actually, not the med coast, on the Atlantic coast. I'm halfway up a mountain overlooking the beautiful bay and the town of Tarifa. Fantastic stuff. Here with a couple of mates, Joe and MT, and it's just glorious. But I've got to tell you about Spain, my observations of Spain, but we'll get to that in a bit.
0: Well, I'll tell you, look, I, you're lucky. I mean, you know, Lebanon, don't worry, I'll be boring the knickers off you on Lebanon for the next uh, three or four weeks. That's just a warning to the podcast. I'm just turning Lebanese. That was a song, wasn't it? Yes, turning Lebanese. I think I'm turning Lebanese. I really think so. <laughs> There's a chorus as well. Uh, I think it was by a band called the Mekons, yeah, maybe yeah. could have been early 80s. Uh, turning <laughs> Japanese. If anybody in the podcast has got an encyclopedic knowledge of early 80s trivia, by all means, just tweet in on Twitter, at David MacW. And uh, I was out last night with Nassim Taleb, the man who wrote The Black Swan. And I see last night that my old man, Nassim Taleb, was tweeting out as I was uh, imbibing of the finest Phoenician wines and foods here. But uh, with Nassim, very interesting guy. I think a lot of podcasts will know him. Has written many, many things, has been involved in all sorts of interesting economic Financial, mathematical, and now historical issues. And one of the overall fascinating geezers who roams, he's actually going to come to Kilkenomics. So all is good. But John, let me tell you something. Go on. Last week, in a total contrast, I took my staycation after the Dorky Book Festival. And this, I decided to go to Roundstone, where I got married. And we rented a house in Roundstone, very nice house. And it rained in buckets for seven days <laughs> solid. Anybody who was out in the west of Ireland the weekend before last will know exactly what I am talking about. Extraordinary. I got out one afternoon, John, and believe it or not, I cycled from Roundstone to Clifton on the Bog Road. Mac the mammal, huh? <laughs> no, it was more it was more in jeans and a t-shirt than full lycra. You know, full one piece, oh, right. like a purple one piece. You know, looking like a you know looking like a baboon about to mate, uh, as they tend to do. Particularly, you see them actually. If you want to see the mammal, go to Enniskerry, probably at about half ten, the Sunday morning, just outside Dublin, and you will see the mammals on their original uh, savanna. It's like a mammal habitat. Slightly yeah, yeah, many yeah. overweight men with large arses painted into lycra. It's not a good look. Anyway, at the end of my little trip to Clifton, I stopped into Larry's Pub. I don't know if you know it on Clifton, in Clifton, just in the center of the town there. Yeah. And the proprietor, the owner, was a Mr. Damien Joyce. He identified himself as a podcast fan. He's an avid listener. And Oh, good man, Damien. Good man, Damien. So big shout out for Damien, not least because Damien, he's also a Patreon. And he also took one look at me after the five swift pints of stout and two packets of tato after my Sean Kelly-like King of the Mountains performance over the Bog Road, and he actually put the bike in the back of the car and drove me back to Ramstone. So, thank you very much, Damien, and shout out That's to you. Cheating, Max—that's called cheating. <laughs> I know, I know. But you know, interestingly, when I was in the West of Ireland, John, and 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 also last night, the night before last, when I flew in here from Turkey, when I met a friend of mine in Istanbul, everybody is complaining about the fact that they cannot get enough staff, right? From the west of Ireland to Istanbul, right? And you read the papers, you talk to people in business, the constant, constant refrain is we cannot get enough staff. If we could only get staff at the right price, we could be flying. Now, there's one way of looking at this, which is that there is a staff shortage. The other way of looking at this, and this is what I wanted the topic of today's pod to be about, John, is that pricing power has shifted from the employer to the employee, from the owner of the business to the worker, and ultimately, as our friend Karl Marx, who I know you read avidly all the time, would suggest, from capital to labor. And this is a big thing, John. And it's happening all over the world. And what it's saying to misquote, now that we're on 1980s uh, music, Paddy Smith. Yes, indeed. By the way, that was The Vapors earlier. Oh, look at you Googling on the sly. No, I wasn't Googling. No, no, I knew that. (laughs) Okay, so The Vapors turning Japanese, uh, John gets a cuddly toy and a dishwasher and gets to go home for me. But, by the way, that's also a weird reference to the Generation Game or Blankety Blank. These are all 80s references, okay? And you're another, regressing, you're regressing. Another, another 80s reference today is uh, Patti Smith's The People of the Power. Well, the title of this podcast is going to be, The People Have the Pricing Power because what is actually happening, John, is a massive shift in the way the corporate world works. I think it probably started with the pandemic. It has been kickstarted by or given life by the spike in the rate of inflation. But what we're seeing is something really deep in the way the, the economy works, the global economy works, and it's probably good news for workers over the uh, over the coming decades. So, is this like um,
2: a rebalancing of the economy of the labor-capital
0: equation? I think it probably is, I think it is now it's of course it's changed by technology, it's changed by choices about where we want to live. It's yeah. changed by the fact that certainly in the West, the labor force has become much well educated, much more educated, much less likely to want to do manual or what used to be called menial jobs, which I always think is a ridiculous idea because no job is menial, and certainly manual jobs has always been a short time that manual jobs are kind of slightly less brainy than sort of white collar jobs again i'm not too sure about yeah, that in fact yeah. david graber who passed away recently wrote a great book called on bullshit jobs about the idea of sort of lots and lots of jobs actually having no endemic reward yeah. for the people but different issue but i think what i want to do is i want to go back something struck me just before i went away i did an event in city west right and the event was for mm. a boston-based big finance institution called fidelity And they were opening their offices and what I was their new offices and was really struck by was the the fact that in fidelity now right they've got baristas and they have chefs cooking you know all sorts of food people can choose to come back to work or not nobody's forced to come back to work etc 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 and they you know they've got all sorts of sort of aerodynamic spaces and ceiling to floor windows and greenery so what they're doing what's very clear from the top down is a signal that the workers, the employees, the people who are adding value are the people and the salaried workers, right? Now, that struck me as quite distinct from an event that happened 20 years ago. And this gives you the sort of the long-term history, John, of what I'm trying to say. About 20 years ago, actually on the day after, the day after 9-11, right, 2001, I was asked to chair a public discussion with a fellow called Jack Welch, Irish-American, deep Boston accents, uh, very, very much like the sort of Irish-Americans you'd meet in, in Boston, but known yeah. to the world as the chief executive of General Electric. And I was emceeing his tour a- in Ireland, and then we did a few dates around Europe subsequently. But what was fascinating in Ireland is the great and good turned up, and what they turned up to here was a guy who had made his name and his own personal fortune, by the way, in a thing called obsession with shareholder value. And his obsession was at GE, which was again the biggest conglomerate in the United States, General Electric. It was driving up the share price by driving down the cost base. And he said, that's all management has to do. Total contrast with what I saw this week in City West and what we're seeing all around the place as firms talk about workers and looking after wellness and all that sort of stuff, right? So that was the kind of classic capitalist view. Exactly, exactly. and But really narrow gauge. So basically you said there are no stakeholders. So employees come second, suppliers come second, even customers come second. As long as you can sell whatever yeah. product you're selling at the maximum, maximum profit, That's the role of management. You don't have to do anything else. Now that was adopted all over corporate America and all over lots of the English speaking world, right? The French and the Germans didn't adopt it. Ironically, they kept their own management structures, nor did the Japanese, but the English-speaking world adopted this. And what it meant, and they had this bizarre thing in GE was they ranked every single employee on these productivity metrics. And if you happen to fall in the bottom 10%, think about this, in the bottom 10% 10% of employees, right? You were fired every year. They called it rank and yank. As they, the yanks always like to come up with these sort of, yeah, they, these sort of things, right? Yeah. That's unbelievable. Imagine, Imagine the sort of anxiety that would have created the worry, the fear, the loathing. Could you imagine the fear every Monday morning working that company, right? Yeah. As yeah. everybody was turned against each other. So there was no community. There was no workforce. It was just employees, employees against each other. So it was kind of dog-eat-dog idea. Now, interestingly, Welch's philosophy was embraced enormously, right? Um, And, of course, what this led to, John, this is the fascinating thing, is that if you run corporations entirely based on profit for shareholders, there's many implications, but the major implication is the following. Which is that profit only accrues to shareholders, and there tends to be always far, far fewer owners than workers. So, if your entire agenda is based on maximizing shareholder value, what you will do is you will enrich the people who own the company, and relatively, you will impoverish the people who work in the company. Right? Yeah. And then, if you apply that to a global or national scale in the like let's say nationwide in the United States what that of course does is it amplifies inequality profoundly because for every single percentage of GDP a higher percentage is going to profit and a smaller cent- percentage is going to labor so that means sure. that basically your upper middle class and upper class do extremely well and your lower middle class your working class and below the working class your immigrant class who are really struggling for a stake, particularly in the United States, do extremely badly. So what you do is over a period of, let's say, three or four decades, or in this case, two decades, what you do is you drive a coach and horses through the class system, dividing the owners of capital, profit owners on one side doing really well, and then the owners of labor. So we've said it before on on, on the podcast, there's People who derive their income from capital, from dividends and rents and those sort of things. And then there's the people, the vast majority, who derive their income from wages, and they're the workers. But it always struck me as, just even as a strategy,
2: to create such inequality. Uh, And as you say, you end up having all of your staff being, you know, under so much pressure and anxious all the time, that it's just... What it does to a society, not just the workers, but as a society as a whole, you know, makes the whole society anxious and unstable. And, you know, as a long-term strategy, that cannot work. But tell us, how is that changing now and how is that moving
0: on? Okay, well, just to answer that question, the great thing about democracy, there's a very famous advisor to Roosevelt, who's a Supreme Court judge. Now, that's very topical at the moment in the United States, okay, in the 40s. Sure is. Right? (laughs) exactly exactly but louis brandage in the in the 1940s the early 1950s okay the kind of heyday of american what i would call american soft capitalism right he said very simply he said you can have democracy or you can have inequality but you can't have both and what he meant by that was that at its very core inequality is anti-democratic because the promise of a democracy is one man, one vote. And that promise yeah. is a promise that tends towards equality. The promise of extreme capitalism is one man, all the votes, i.e. the rich guy gets all the stake, he gets all the goodies, yeah. right? And what Brandeis was saying is that at the core, there is an inconsistency between that type of capitalism and a vibrant democracy. And so what you do is these people we're talking about who've been left behind might not necessarily have a stake in society, but what they do have is they have a vote. And the pendulum tends to swing. But unlike the sort of pendulum you'd see in engineering, which mechanically swings quite smoothly, in the real world of human beings, that pendulum swings erratically. And so what we saw was over the last five or maybe 10 years, is that the people who are left out by this hyper-capitalism as embraced by, ironically, Jack Welch, who was a big Trump supporter, right, and a big, big, uh, you'd imagine, a Republican. Of course he was. Those people voted for the guy who said, you know, take back control, drain the swamp, make America great again. So the pendulum swings, tends to swing towards populism before it swings back to liberal democracy. And that's exactly what we've seen. And now, after populism, it's swinging back towards more, I would say, centricism. The idea that of liberal democracies, the idea that what we have, we need to have is a society that looks after itself and looks after those who are left behind. And where we most see this, John, this us come back to our point, is in wages. So people, whether they're the workers yeah. in the rail striking unions in the UK, right? Or whether they're the workers in Ryanair mm-hmm. in Spain, or whether they are the workers in the West of Ireland who might say, well, you know what, I don't want to wait on tables unless you pay me X amount more than you're prepared to do, right? It's the workers are withdrawing their labour at a certain price, which is pushing the price of labour, i.e. wages, up. And the workers are saying, now we have the power. And it's fascinating as well. Which is a good thing, though. I think it's a good thing.
2: Yeah, because it's a, it's it's a because correction that has been it has been so skewed in the, in the last, as you say, 20 years and and it's that kind of dated attitude in america where you know any talk of workers rights or wage inequality and all the rest or anything that deviates from that kind of jack welsh school of thought is deemed as the kind of demonic socialism marxism communism that you hear that refrain all the time in in america but but this is a good thing that yeah i mean but, but talk to me more about where this is going now
0: the reason it's a very good thing john is profits have never been higher if profits are very very low and workers demand really really high wages right what happens is the companies go out of business right but what we're looking at is a situation where profits have never been higher even yeah with all these falls in price and prices stock prices etc but where it's going is the fascinating thing is that the central banks that had been on the side of capital for the last, certainly since 2008, that basically central banks said to the private sector, we're going to look after your PL, right? Don't worry about it. We're going to cut interest rates. Yeah. We're going to make capital cheap. We're going to look after you. There's been a massive shift for central banks in the last two or three months have said, you know what? We don't care about your PL. So as stock markets have fallen, you know, crypto has fallen, tech sector has fallen, as the S and P has fallen all around the world. I mean, we're looking at maybe the biggest correction in stock markets in at least two decades since 2008, right? The central banks have said we're chilled about this, right? We're going to allow the mm. process to actually go through the various iterations, right? Like one fascinating thing, and that means even though they're talking about coming down on inflation, that means that they're quite happy, I think, for the complexion of inflation to be more skewed towards slightly higher wages uh, as long as they can try and get energy energy prices down. Now, what's fascinating is if you were reading recently in the US, lots of people complaining about the fact that Uber fares are going up dramatically. And Mm. the initial thought was, of course, they're going up dramatically because the price of gas is going up dramatically. But something else is happening, which is the following, that this really hyper-capitalist idea is all about tending towards monopoly that the firm really, even though they talk about competition, they really want to be monopolistic because that's when you can actually extract supernormal profits, right? Now, what has actually happened, again, it's really fascinating, is companies like Uber were allowing their fares to be so low and they were subsidizing Uber drivers, ironically, in order to elbow out yellow cabs or black cabs or whatever, right? And they could do that Because they were using shareholder capital to do so. So, as long as shareholders were prepared for Uber not to make any profit, and this goes for all the Deliveroo and all those other sort of companies,
2: right? So, this is the the Amazon kind of model approach to it.
0: it. Precisely, John. So, as long as they were prepared to use free capital from shareholders to elbow out existing competition, be they taxi drivers or restaurants or retail shops or whatever was their target right what they could do is they could hold down prices indefinitely they could screw their competitors indefinitely until the competitors went out of business and then they would increase prices and make huge profits on a captured market right now what has happened now is because their profits have fallen because shareholder capital is now increasingly expensive as interest rates have risen or are beginning to rise manifestly and because the central bank has said look we, we don't have your back anymore We're allowing the process to actually go through its various different cycles. What is actually happening is Uber have to raise prices, so you've got this extraordinary link between inflation in the United States and all over the world, and the interest rate cycle, where as capital becomes more expensive, inflation doesn't fall, but it rises. And this is what's playing right. out, and all the while, then workers are saying, "Hold on a second! If inflation's at ten percent, and my real wages are two, my wages are two percent, means my real wages are minus eight percent. I've got to go and look for more wages." Now, in the past, because there was so much surplus employment, i.e., unemployment, because people were in the labour yeah. market. What happened typically was when you went to get a higher wage increase, a guy next door said, well, I'll do the job for the same price or even cheaper, and you had no pricing power. But now, because labor markets are so tight, you, the worker, has the pricing power to actually say, no, I want to go for higher wages. And what it's doing, it's rebalancing this economy. Now, these things don't work really smoothly. So there'll be industrial relations crises, there'll be strikes, there'll be showdowns between unions and the public sector, all sorts of stuff the important thing is to see what's happening. And what's happening is the swing of the pendulum, as I said, it's not gentle, it's erratic, and it can lead to problems, but it's swinging away from the return to capital being preeminent in the capitalist system, in our system, to something like the more democratic return to labor being dominant. And how we're seeing this is we're only seeing the end conversations, which is the conversation you will have with an employer saying, I can't get staff. Yeah. But that doesn't actually take you through the analysis of what's happening, which is deep in the engine of the economy. The muscularity of power has shifted from capitalists to workers. And that, I think, is a massive story that has been undertold, underwritten, and underappreciated, but I think will dominate the next 12 to 24 months
2: Spain is fantastic. and it's been, it's been a real epic trip, actually. It really has been. And I've done loads of walking up in the Picos. But like I was saying earlier, I started in the Bay of Biscay right down through the middle of Spain. Actually, just a little aside, when I arrived in Madrid and I've strolled around Madrid and it was lovely, you know. And because it's Pride Month, there was loads of people around, all dressed up, and it was a great vibe. But I also noticed there was loads of cops. Heavily armed cops and army guys with their AR-15s and all that. And I was going, Jesus, lads, this is a bit heavy for a pride march. And of course, I had switched off all my news. I just didn't want to have any news for the few days I was walking and stuff. And then I suddenly realized, ah, it's nothing to do with the pride march. It's Joe Biden and all the NATO lads are in town. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, of
0: course. That's a very important summit, too.
2: Absolutely it was. And there was, you know, you look up in all the roofs and there were snipers all around the place. So I grabbed my recorder to go down and grab Joe Biden and get a few comments. But unfortunately, even (laughs) when I said, even when I said that I'm from the David McWilliams podcast, they were having none of it.
0: Joe, I can't believe, I can't believe. We need to up our game in Spain. (laughs) The whole thing.
2: (laughs) But let me tell you about what I have found in Spain and the kind of the big issues. Like there has been some big, significant local and regional elections that have kind of reflecting the changing mood in Spain. Now, I'm not going to get into the the politics of it all, but there will be there's a big general election next year, 2023, which is something that we should probably keep our eye on. But one of the big issues in all of this is the kind of you were talking about it just earlier about the inequality and the inequality between urban and rural Spain. And also another topic that we talk about a lot is dereliction. But what's happening in Spain is that the interior of Spain is emptying out. It's being depopulated. For instance, a few figures on this. There are five rural regions in Spain that make up over 53% of the entire country but now only has 15% of the population completely emptying out. And the countryside over the last 50 years has lost 28% of its population. It's incredible. So what has actually ended up is you have not only derelict buildings and derelict houses and farms and stuff, you've whole abandoned villages. They've completely wiped out. You can actually go and buy a village here in Spain which I was thinking of doing, actually, (laughs) with my petty cash from the trip. But, for instance, there's an area called Suria, which is just west of Zaragoza, northeast of of Madrid. But the population there now is something like 8.6 people per per square kilometer, which is less of a population than the wildest parts of Wyoming in America. And the fertility rate in in Spain at the moment, and particularly in these areas, is in the region of 1.2, 1.3. So Spain is dying, and they call it empty Spain. And it's an incredible thing. And we were talking about kind of a similar thing before when we were out in Inishman, you know, how to regenerate rural areas. And it's all about connectivity. Now, the Spanish government are, are now, well, through, with EU money, plowing money into connectivity and supports for kind of childcare and old age and all that just to try and regenerate these emptying out of Spain, these rural empty
0: areas. John, this is like the Jackie Healy Ray approach to politics, <laughs> which is that, you know, everybody in rural areas has been laid waste and desolate, and all you people in urban areas are some sort of metropolitan elite. But I mean, you know, in order to and we're gonna come back to this, but in order to actually close the circle, right? But' if something that's very fascinating in what you've just said, which is the following: that the reason the population has fallen so dramatically in rural areas is that the productivity of farmers has risen incredibly dramatically also. So the amount of farmers that it used right. to take to generate agricultural produce has gone, let's say, from 10 to one. So nine people have left the farm or left the land. Now, the reason productivity in farming has gone right up is that farming has become unbelievably energy intensive. So if you take out nine farmers, you've got to replace their energy, their actual muscularity with some other muscle. Mm -hmm. And what we've replaced this with is petrol, is diesel. And so what you're seeing now, John, is coincident with that move away from rural areas is the fact that agriculture now in Spain and all over the world has become unbelievably energy intensive. And you know that link that we talk about now between inflation, Mm. energy, and food is now completely solidified simply because of what we've done, which is you educate people to migrate away from the land, but you still need to eat the produce of the land. So how do you eat the produce of the land with less With less human energy, you've got to put in machines. So what we've seen are machines demand carbon. So it's an amazing way to kind of conclude is this extraordinary thing that we started talking about inflation. We started talking about pricing power. We started to talk about workers. We've ended in rural Spain. And what you can see is that there's a huge landscape where it's all the dots are joined up that agriculture is now... In effect, we are eating fossil fuels. Imagine that, okay? Just think about that. We are eating fossil fuels. Fossil fuels make us entirely dependent on fossil fuel productions, which are our friends, the Russians. And all the while, as you say, politics is trying to tidy up the mess, but politics is not only two or three years, but maybe two or three decades behind. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Man. Three years, wow. Oh it's a long time. <laughs> I thought it only started last week. <laughs> it's <laughs> such a good crack though, <laughs> it isn't is,
2: it? It is, it is, it it's is. Like, it's <laughs> like
0: having the dream gig, you know. <laughs> thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams ad-free, you get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff, and you really become part of the gang. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And again, thank you very much.